Um, I'm actually going to take a minute to abuse my pastoral privilege as we get started, um, and I'm going to show you a couple of my most favorite pictures in the world. Are they back there? Let's see how they show up. Come on, show up well. Two of my most favorite pictures. Look at that. Those are two of my most favorite pictures in the world. Uh, I look at them relatively often uh, for encouragement, uh, for smiles, for laughs, and this week we are going to celebrate yet another anniversary together as husband and wife. Um, and as I look at these pictures, uh, there's lots of memories that I've got and lots of words come to mind. And I was thinking this week along the lines of what we've been talking about, and I, and I thought, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I mean, if a picture can say more than any amount of language that I can come up with, and if a picture tells a more dramatic story than I could ever tell, the words that these pictures don't really pick up on are words like lazy, narcissistic, indifferent, selfish, ignorant, arrogant. A picture tells a a thousand words, but these pictures don't convey the full depth and reality of what's going on here. I mean, a picture, it says a lot of things, but those particular words don't generally come to mind when you look at that. But yet, on the very next day, those two people had to wake up with each other for the first time and for the rest of their lives in their ignorant, arrogant, selfish, lazy, narcissistic souls. But the pictures don't, don't tell those words. And the pictures don't tell the story of the first five years of that cocktail of laziness and narcissism and selfishness and blind ambition and how in the world it would deal with massive financial loss. How in the world, you know, those two would deal with the loss of two kids. How in the world those two would deal with ambitions gone awry and adventures gone awry. Those pictures tell a lot of stories and say a lot of words, but it doesn't get to the full scope of things. And those pictures can't tell the story of how God would foresee all of those things and in his good and, and kind providence take what the first five years had, had sought to destroy and use it in such a way that the next five years would display something so remarkably different that when I look at those pictures, I have a hard time even recognizing the people in them. I look younger, yes. I have more hair on my head than on my face in the pictures. But when I look at the pictures, in God's good kindness and providence and mercy, I have a hard time even recognizing the people in them. The pictures tell lots of stories and use lots of words, but they don't tell the story of how that lazy and narcissistic guy and that ambitious and insecure girl began to become people that would reflect God's glory. They don't tell the story of how those two people began to learn what it meant to actually enjoy grace. And they don't tell the story of what it actually looks like when God takes somebody like them and begins to transform them into his image. And together, as a husband and a wife and as a family, they begin to reflect the character of God as he's revealed himself. So that's what we've been talking about for the last 
few weeks to some degree. We've been taking the last handful of weeks going through the New Testament book of Titus, and, and we've been focusing in on Paul's encouragement to his buddy Titus in this young church to help the people, encourage the people, teach the people, guard the people, lead the people, that they might enjoy God's grace deeply. That when you begin to get a taste of the measure of God's grace in the gospel, you begin to learn that it is the one thing that can change everything. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is the one thing that can transform everything about who you are. It transforms everything about how you understand who you are in relation to God, who you are in relation to yourself, who you are in relation to other people. Grace changes everything. We've been unpacking what it looks like to enjoy grace deeply. It's grace alone as it comes from Christ alone that can take what we saw in in Titus, these Cretans who were filthy drunkards and liars, and turn them into men who love their wives as Christ has loved the church, who are respectable, who are self-controlled, who are sober-minded. It was only grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone that could take these women who were gossipy, arrogant, indulgent, and turn them into women who were temple-like temple-like in their demeanor, reverent in their heart and in their soul. It's grace alone, through Christ alone, that can take narcissistic, lazy, young men like me and ambitious and insecure young women like my wife and turn them into a family that for God's glory and their good reflects his grace as they learn to enjoy him deeply and enjoy his grace deeply. That's what we've been talking about. And last week, we went off on a little bit of a rabbit trail as we began to look at what that looks like lived out in our, in our, in our life as a man and life as a woman with the aim of what that looks like as they come together in a husband and a wife. Because there is no more profound example of what it looks like to grow into the reflection of Christ by his grace and take the responsibility for the well-being of another person as Paul portrays it to Titus in the life of a church. There's no more intense microcosm of that responsibility than in marriage. And so last week, we, we ran off on a rabbit trail to talk a little bit about what it meant to enjoy grace deeply as a man, what it meant to enjoy grace deeply as a woman, and what it would look like when those two people came together. And we're going to wrap that up this week. So before I pray, I'm going to remind myself and remind you so that you could pray of the encouragement that I always get from Raymond when I do this. If I, if I go off on a rabbit trail, rabbit trails are okay as long as I come back with a rabbit. So we're going to pray this morning that the rabbit trail we've been on is one that leads to a rabbit And this morning, we'll understand a little bit more of what it looks like to enjoy grace, not only as a man, not only as a woman, but as a family and in a marriage. So let's pray, and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your willingness to love those who were unlovely. Thank you for the power of your mercy that loves those who were unlovely into loveliness. Father, I ask in the next few minutes that we have together this morning that you would do what only you could do by your spirit and that's conform men and women like us into the image of your son. That you would take our sinful hearts and by the power of your spirit begin to transform them into reflection and likeness of your son. May we be a people who reflect your glory. May people see us and experience our lives as we live them out with others and may they see you in us and may they marvel at what you have done in us and may our lives be honorable before others that they might see you and give honor to you. That's what we ask this morning. You do what only you can do in us. We ask this, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.
So we're going to go off track a little bit this morning. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Peter. It's not far from Titus. Just go right. Turn a few pages and you'll get there. We're going to take a look at, at marriages that enjoy grace this morning in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, and I'm going to read our text and then I'm going to explain it a little bit to you. So 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. And then I'm going to make some sense of it by God's grace. This is what Peter says. Everybody loves this. If you're new to Redemption Hill, you picked a good week. Everybody's favorite verses in the Bible. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the, jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there's a very important word that gets repeated in these verses that you've got to pick up on and understand the role it plays in these verses if you're not going to butcher these things. These might be some of the most abused and butchered verses in the Bible related to men and women and marriage, and conversely, some of the most ignored verses in the Bible when it comes to men and women and God's grace in marriage. So you've got to pick up on a particular word that gives a lot of context and a lot of shape to this. And do you know what the word is? Likewise. That likewise is a very, very important word. To understand what Peter is talking about, you've got to go backwards just a little bit to get the context of how all these things fall together. So you've got to go back to, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. In verse 3, when Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter starts his letter with an encouragement to the church that's scattered throughout the region of the power of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God in the gospel. He encourages them to go back to remember, to grab a hold of what is true about them because of what Jesus has done for them. And then he goes on in, in chapter two and he, he says this in, in verse nine. You, again, are a, whole, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now listen, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is important. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. 
Peter then goes on from there to unpack what this honorable conduct looks like in our lives as we live them out as employers and employees, as we live them out in submission to authorities in the government, submission to the authorities in the workplace. How then, according to the whole biblical teaching on this, we submit to one another and encourage one another and live honorable lives before one another. That's where this likewise comes from. And he comes down now to husbands and wives in the marriage and He says, likewise, just as you respond with honorable conduct because of the gospel in like ways here, here is how you're to respond now. See, what Peter's getting at and what we've abused for so long in this passage is is Peter is going back to a grounding in in the letter in the gospel and in a new identity. And he's saying, remember back to who you are because of what God's done for you in Jesus. Remember back to the security that you felt and the security that you grabbed hold of when you first understood what God has done for you and what that means for who you are. Let that new identity, let that new security, let that new source of hope now give shape to how you live in an honorable way before others. What Peter's getting at in these verses about husbands and wives isn't strictly verses about rote submission and rote behavior and rote honor and rote life. He's, he's talking about a life that is born out of a security and a hope and an identity that comes from knowing who you are because of what God has done. The context of these verses that so often gets lost and, and we'll butcher them and we'll miss them if we don't understand it, it's not rote behavior that he's after. He's after a life that's bearing fruit. It's coming from an identity, a security, and a hope that's being found in the gospel. And so he says, likewise, wives, with a new identity being found solely in who you are because of what God has done on your behalf, with a new identity and a new sense of purpose about who you are and how you relate to the world around you, wives, likewise, this is what it's to look like. And one of the things I think we missed, because a couple of weeks ago, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to the, to the message. I won't take a lot of time this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we spent some time talking about what it looks like for wives to live in, in honorable biblical submission to their husbands. We talked a lot about what it is, but this passage, more than defining what it is, gives us pictures of what it looks like. And before we talk about what it looks like to live in an honorable way with your husband out of an identity and a security and a hope that comes from what God has done for you in Jesus and now says about you, I want you not to miss how Peter does that. He says, wives, live in an honorable way with your husbands. Live, in a, live subject to your husbands out of an identity and a hope in God, not, not in your external beauty. Do you remember, this is about living out of a sense of identity and hope and purpose that comes from the gospel. It's not about rote behavior. And what Peter says is hope in God. Put your hope, put your trust, put your security, put your identity, put your sense of worth in what God has done for you, not not what you look like. Now, let me say this. Let me say this. There is a sense in, in this text of an appeal on Peter's behalf to modesty. If you think about the ways this has been taught, if you come from the church, this, these passages have often been used in different ways to make standards, to make lists, to make checking stations at doors of churches for what women are supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do and, and the things they should wear and the things they shouldn't wear. That's not what this verse does. This text is not trying to communicate that. There is an underlying appeal in these verses for modesty. But modesty is born out of an understanding of who you are before God. 
Modesty that's born out of a sense of identity and worth that comes from what God has done for you in Christ, not some list of external rules that the church is supposed to make for you. So ladies, here's what I would say about this. God is not so much concerned with what you wear, but why you wear it. He's not so much concerned with what you wear, but why you wear it. And if you're unsure of some of the things that you wear, if they communicate a sense of appropriateness and modesty, here's my encouragement. Grab a wise lady that you know, a wise friend, and let them help you go through your stuff. Let them help you look at your clothes and say, yeah, that still fits you. Yeah, that really doesn't. What are you trying to say when you wear that? Is that a healthy thing to communicate? Find somebody. Let them help you. There is an underlying appeal to modesty here, but look, listen to verse three and verse four. This is not what he's after. Peter said, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, Peter's not dogging braids and hairdos and clothes and makeup. and He's not trying to skid us to set up inspection stations around the church that, that look at you and say, you can wear this, don't wear this, with a little closet with things to put on so you can come in and look right. He's not coming up with reasons for why we say you have to wear pants and not skirts and hair in a particular way. That's not what, that's not what Peter's after. But understanding his appeal gets us closer to the heart of what he's after. The real issue that Peter is trying to chase is an encouragement for you not to place your identity and security in your external beauty. To not place your sense of identity, your sense of hope, your sense of purpose, your sense of security in your external beauty. And before you turn me off, don't think that's not a problem. Before you turn me off, don't think that's not a problem. Two quick clicks on the internet led me to the statistics that accurate or not, say we as Americans spend $48 billion a year on cosmetics alone. $10.5 billion on recreational plastic surgery. Neither of those things take into account the money we spend on clothes, gyms, diet pills, health things. Now listen, Peter is not saying that those things in and of themselves are bad. Braids, no braids. Short hair, long hair. Makeup, no makeup. Jumpers, no jumpers. Jeans, skirts. Morally neutral. Morally neutral. Gym memberships, morally neutral. Diet pills, morally neutral. Cosmetic surgery, morally neutral. Peter is not saying these things are bad. What Peter is saying is that morally neutral things in the hands of somebody whose identity is to be found in Christ have massive gospel implications. Peter's saying what you look like and what you do, that those are morally neutral things. I'm not telling you what to do with those things. What I'm saying is don't find your sense of security and your sense of identity in those things. Don't find your hope so deeply wound up in what you look like that it compels you to take those things that in God's creation are morally neutral and to use them to do things that project a gospel implication of a lack of faith and sense of hope and security in what God has done for you and what he says about you. I'm not cutting the men out here either. More men spend money these days on grooming products and recreational surgery than ever before in the history of this country. 
men getting pec implants and calf implants and butt implants and taking their hairline from back here and moving it up here. Morally neutral things in the hands of a believer have massive gospel implications. What Peter is saying is don't don't place your sense of security and your sense of identity and your sense of hope in your external beauty. Hope in God. Hope in God. Remember what we said last week when we were looking at Proverbs 31? I don't think I'll put it up there for you. Maybe I did. Proverbs 31. Look at verses 25 through 30. That reader finding those 22 things to praise about this woman who has found her sense of hope and security in who God is for her. He said this, strength and dignity, those are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. He praises her. Many of the women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Strength and dignity don't just show up. Strength and dignity don't just spontaneously generate. I mean, where do they actually come from? Strength and dignity in the life of a woman who fears the Lord comes from an ongoing practice of delighting in who God is for her, in the cultivation of the soul, and the things we talk about here all the time. This is a woman whose greatest ambition in life is to cultivate her soul to reflect the character of Christ. Strength and beauty just don't show up in her life one day. She wakes up daily with the holy ambition this day to cultivate her soul, to reflect the character of her Savior. In every circumstance she finds herself in, in every opportunity that she has, her ambition is to reflect the character of the one who has called her to himself. Strength and dignity just don't show up. She wakes up going, how can I enjoy grace more deeply today? There's a passion that moves within her, a passion that she wakes up with, that, whose, delight, whose delight is in who she is before God. This lady isn't like the ladies in Crete. She's not like the ladies that we've looked at in this, in this letter that Paul wrote. Her mouth is not loose. Her tongue isn't used for slander. Her tongue isn't used for gossip. But when she opens her mouth, wisdom and intelligence fall out. Where does that come from? I mean, you don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden open your mouth and what had once been used 24 hours before to demolish the reputation of another person, you open your mouth and off your tongue come wisdom, insight, kindness, and intelligence. And where does that come from? It comes from a, a heart that's passion is to find itself secure and hopeful in who God is and what he says about her. There's no more insecurity about who she is. It's no longer the overriding filter of her heart. The mouth that was used to tear others apart, to belittle others, to nag others, to point out things about others, to build up herself, only reflected an insecurity that no longer felt safe and hopeful in the identity of, of a Christian, of one who has been rescued and transformed by God. But because this woman's passion has been the cultivation of her soul, 
the reflection of the character of Christ in her heart, she opens her mouth and wisdom falls out. Intelligence falls out. Her husband and her kids now sing her praise in response to this. Her husband stands at the city gate with all the elders and all the prominence. And he doesn't sing the praises of her external beauty. You don't find him standing in front of his others, finding something to say about his wife and going, wow, she's hot. What can I say? She's hot. Spent a lot of money to keep her that way. <laughs> this guy and the, her family, they stand in front of the city. And the words that come out of his mouth when he thinks of what he can say about his wife is her excellence. It's the beauty that's been cultivated by the passion and the ambition that has taken over her heart to see her soul cultivated to reflect the character of Christ. Put your hope, your security, your identity in the gospel. Enjoy grace deeply. Be zealous to cultivate your soul. That's Peter's encouragement to the wives here. And let me say this, you can do that whether you're married or not. You can do that right now, today and tomorrow, whether you're married or not. You can pray and wake up with the ambition to see your soul cultivated to reflect the character of Christ, whether you're married or not. There's one other thing that this text means by negation, and I don't want to miss this because we don't really talk about this one either. Hope in God, find your identity and security in God, live in an honorable, respectful, submissive way with your husband that's born out of a sense of identity and security in who God says you are. Hope in God, wives, not your beauty and not your man. Hope in God, not your man. You see, Sarah, the faithful woman of old who put her hope in God, if she had put her hope in Abraham, if her sense of security and her sense of identity and her sense of well-being and her sense of purpose had been wrapped up in that foolish man, the consequences could have been disastrous. And what happens more often than not is we come into relationships, and, and men do this as well, but we're only going to pick on the women right now because I'm going to pick on the men in just a minute. We come into relationships, and there seems to be this cultural sense that as a woman, you're kind of this dotted outline of a person, and it's waiting to find something that will fill it up. And from all, all realities of sin and, and cultural dynamics and, and home upbringing, all, all the things that come together to create the, the struggle that is your heart, there's this sense that when this man comes, when you find this man, when you think God brought this man or however this thing works, then all of a sudden that once dotted line waiting for something to fill it up is now going to be filled. That that sense of purpose and security that you were so insecure about, all the things that you had so struggled with, this guy is going to make it right. Being with this guy is going to fix those things. He's a moron. He's not going to fix those things. Time and time and time again, he will fail you. He will hurt you, sometimes intentionally, most of the time unintentionally, but it will happen. Your hope is to be placed and who God is and what he has done for you and what that says about who you are. When a woman is 
cultivating her soul to reflect the character of Christ and learning to enjoy grace more deeply and living out of a security and a sense of identity that comes from the gospel and not her beauty and not her husband, she begins to live with him in an honorable way, in a way that Peter paints a picture of instead of saying exactly what it does. Peter says when this begins to take form in her heart and in her life, she begins to live with her husband in an honorable way, in a submissive way, even if he's a moron, even if he's a fool, better yet, even if he's an unbeliever, because this focus on her heart, on her cultivation, on her soul, on her sanctification, on her transformation has a powerful effect on the people around her. And when this begins to happen, what takes shape and what gets reflected in their marriage is a relationship of respect, a relationship of gentleness, and a relationship of purity. Now, I'm going to be remiss if I don't say something about it. Hold on. Respect. Let me just talk about this for a second. When your identity and security is increasingly becoming more dependent upon who God is and not all the other things you tend to put it in, you can begin to live with your husband, the idiot that he is, in a respectful way. You know what that looks like? It looks like no longer focusing on his weaknesses, majoring on his minors. You know, in fact, Proverbs 21 and Proverbs 12, I believe, say, it is better for this man, even if he's an unbeliever, even if he's an idiot, even if he doesn't get it at all, it's better for him to live in the desert or on the top of a house than with a lady who doesn't have respect for her husband than with a lady who's quarrelsome and tends to focus on his weaknesses, tends to major on his minors. When your security is coming from who God is and what that says about you and your identity is no longer wrapped up in who he is or who y'all are supposed to be, you can begin to live in a way that respects him in his role as your husband. Even if as a man he may not be the most respectable guy, you can begin to live with him in respect for the role that he is in in your relationship. And let me say this, because some of you in your brains are going, but you don't know my husband. But you don't know just how stupid he is. Let me say this, and this is the truth. This is true about me. It's true about your husband. It's true about every single marriage in here. I'll say 99.9% of them. You knew that about him when you married him. You knew that about him when you married him. Less than 1% of marriages that I have ever encountered, not as a pastor or as a friend, ever truly had the le legitimate experience of waking up one day with a totally different person. All those weaknesses, you knew them when you married him. He didn't just wake up that way. But when your identity is being born out of an understanding of who you are before God and not him or anything else, you can live with respect towards him even as an idiot even as an idiot, seeking to find ways to encourage him, seeking to find ways to pray for him, seeking to find ways to, to come along as his helpmate, as his soulmate, as his wife, to encourage the places where he's strong and encourage the places where he's weak and not major on the bad things. When that happens, you can live in a respectful manner. You can live in a, a pure manner. You can live in a manner that's pure with your husband. And there's an element of sexual tension that's going on in that word, 
It is talking about a, a pure marriage, a, a sexually pure manner, but what that word is actually getting after is a purity of motive. When your identity is wrapped up in who God says you are, and your security and your hope is coming from your understanding of the gospel as it relates to your life and your heart, you can live with your husband, moron as he may be, in a pure manner. No longer are your hopes and your dreams and your expectations for the future wrapped up in your mind with someone else's husband. No longer is your world waiting for this white knight that's going to scoop in somewhere and rescue you and take you away. No longer are the motivations for how you speak to him and why you speak to him and what you do aimed at changing who he is in a subversive and sideways way. You can live with him in a pure way, in a pure manner, because your hope and your security is not coming from who he is and what he's supposed to do to fix you. You can live with him in purity, not in fantasy. Now, my wife and I talk about things before I preach them all the time, and I said, these are going to be tough ones for me because, you know, I'm not a woman. I mean, I don't want to be overly offensive. So what's this look like for you? What's it look like for our marriage? And, and she said, you know, as this begins to take root in your heart and the grace of God gets enjoyed deeper and deeper and deeper when it comes to living this way in purity with your husband, she said the biggest thing that she's realized is learning that there are some things in life, in culture, that do bad things in her mind. Morally neutral things. Sometimes Movies, sometimes storylines, sometimes plot lines and things, they just create in her something that she takes into our marriage and into our relationship that's not healthy. She said, you have to know your weaknesses. Know what things create unhealthy behaviors and attitudes in your heart and stay away from them. Stay away. Let those things then push you back to enjoying the grace of God and, and the root of the gospel more deeply in your soul. And you can live, begin to continue to live in purity with your, with your spouse, with your husband, men too. Do the same thing. We're gonna, we'll get to you in a minute. How many of you are ready for me to get to the men? I got some, some men raising their hands. We'll get there in a second. This one, though, this next one, this is the most butchered one of all of them, so I'll take just a second to talk about it. When this identity gets more secure in the gospel, the grace of God gets enjoyed more deeply. Your hope becomes dependent upon that and not other things. Even when your husband's a moron, you can live with him in a manner that's Gentle and, and quiet. This has been abused probably more than any other text short of the way we talked about Proverbs 31 being abused in relation to women and, and their husbands. And one thing I want to point out briefly, just so you know, is that all of these things that Peter is, is encouraging the women and the wives in, these, in this passage on is to be true of all believers in other parts of the New Testament. All believers are to live with one another in the world around them with meekness, with humility, this quiet and gentle and quiet spirit comes from the same word that the word meekness comes from. And all of us are commanded, and through the gospel in our lives, to live with the world around us and to live with one another in humility and meekness. All of us are called to respect one another, born out of a sense of gospel comfort, gospel security. But in particular, the way that's lived out is to look a particular way in the way that wives live with their husbands. And this gentleness, this meekness is, is best looked at and, and not really taken apart and picked apart and explained. And I'll try to explain it this way because what he's talking about is, a, is an attitude or, or a spirit in relation to you and your husband. This, this gentleness and quietness, this, this meekness is not shut up and don't talk. Shut up, don't tell me your opinion. You don't have a place to make this decision. You're not a part of this decision. This is mine. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an attitude and a spirit that marks your relationship and your action, interactions with your husband. 
And in the greenhouse, it, it kind of looks like this. And as I was looking for an example of this in our own marriage and, and how God has cultivated this in my wife and in us, and it brings such, such blessing to our life, is she'll do this. She'll, she'll come up to me sometimes, and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm in the kitchen or washing a dish or sitting down at the table or doing something, and she'll come up to me, and she'll say, you got a second? I said, sure. And she'll say, you know, I've just been thinking a lot and, and praying a lot. And she said, you know, I'm really struggling with feeling like a hypocrite. I look at her and say, really? She said, yeah, I, I, I'm really struggling feeling like a hypocrite. And I don't want our family to look like that. I don't want our kids to struggle with that. I don't want that to mark who we are as a family. You have to stand up in front of people all the time and, and encourage them in what the gospel wants. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How, how, how do you think we should deal with that as a family? I mean, how do you think we should begin to cultivate this in our family so that we don't end up there? Do you think you, think you have some, some insight for that? You hear what she's doing? Instead of looking at me and going, you know, in the last little bit of time, you've probably not done the best job leading our family in a direction that honors God and reflects the gospel. It's probably been a bit deficient. You've not done this and not done this. Instead, she recognizes the responsibility that God has given me and the hope that we have as a family. Instead of majoring on those moments of weakness, she comes in and slowly just kind of woos me back into the place that God has called me to be. She slowly puts herself in in the place of encouraging and, and strengthening and wooing me back to my call. There's a gentleness and a quietness about it. There's not a bombastic, loud, arrogant tone to it. It's a meekness that comes from her understanding of who she is before God, that's giving itself out, that's bearing fruit in the way that we're relating to one another. That's what it looks like in this sense that Peter's talking about, out of the gospel, to live in an honorable way with your husband. It doesn't come from hard work. It doesn't come from communication strategies. It doesn't come from books that tell you all the different things you should do and not do. It comes from finding a security and a hope that's born in the gospel. Put your hope and security in God, not in your beauty, not in your man, not in the myriad of other things that you can put it in. And please don't hear Peter saying in these verses, submit, 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 submit. Be quiet, be pure, be gentle. He's saying hope in God. Hope in God. Find your hope in something that can never fail you, that will never leave you and never forsake you, never hurt you, never use you, and never abuse you, but is the one thing that has the power to transform you. Hope in God. Now we can pick on the men. Is that good? Let's pick on the men. Let's keep going. First Peter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We like that, don't we? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, here's what he's getting after. Your new identity in the gospel, your new sense of purpose being born out of the gospel is to be reflected in the way that you love your wife and serve your wife, most specifically in the way that you honor your wife. You have a particular responsibility born out of the gospel to honor your wife. And I want to clarify this for you before you try to get your own definitions for this. Honor has a particular connotation and a particular meaning to it. The word that your Bibles have translated honor here in 1 Peter 3 is the same one that's used in in chapter 2, verse 7, talking about Jesus when it says, to you believers, to you Christians, to you who believe, this stone is now precious talking about Jesus being the cornerstone. 
It's saying this stone, Jesus, is now precious. It's the same word that we translate in 1 Peter 3 in the call of men to honor their wives. And what that means is that, husbands, you are to treat your wives, the, the woman that God has given you, the woman that you have committed yourself to, in such a way that reflects the preciousness of her nature, the preciousness of the gift that God has given you. You are to treat your wives as precious and young men who are not married, you are to treat the women in your life as precious. You can learn this now. You don't have to wait till you're married. We are called to live with a sense of honor towards our wives and we're called to relate to our wives and you're called to relate to women in general, young men, in a way that reflects the preciousness that they have. I'll ask you a couple questions to diagnose yourself. When your wife or your friends are in your presence, do they sense their preciousness from the way you treat them? Do they sense their preciousness? Does your wife believe that apart from Jesus, she's the most precious thing to you? You might want to ask her when we're done. It would probably help your marriage. Where does this preciousness come from? Where does it come from? He, he, He points us here. This preciousness with which we're to treat our wives comes one, in one hand from their physical state, from their natural state. We're to show honor, to treat them as precious as the weaker vessel. Now, before the mental arrows get shot, there are two very important letters in that phrase. Do you know what they are? E-R. You are to treat your wives as precious as the weaker vessel. You, men, are weak vessels. What Peter is talking about is the nature of physicality, that women by nature, biologically, nine times out of ten, are not as strong as you. And then in the first century, when they wrote this, women were subjects to so much abuse and so much violence. Their lives were lived in such a vulnerable state Then you take a woman who's trying to live out the first six verses of 1 Peter 3. She's trying to place herself in in an aspect and a posture of submission and vulnerability to a man as her husband. It puts her in an unbelievably vulnerable place. And he says, you're to treat her as precious on the one hand because of who God has made her as the woman. You're to treat her as precious because she's placing herself in this sense of vulnerability. And you're to love her and care for her and treat her in such a way that cares for that preciousness. But there's a second sense to it. There's a, not just a physical sense, but there's a more important gospel sense to it. You're to treat her as precious because of her spiritual state. Not only is she the wife that God has given you, but she is a co-heir of grace with you. Heirs with you, Peter says in chapter three, of the grace of life. You are to treat your wife as precious. You are to treat your sisters in this church as precious because they are co-heirs with you of the grace that God has rescued you with. They are co-heirs with you in the grace and redemption and transformation of the gospel. They are co-heirs with you in the beautiful redemptive story of God's love for you and for her and for his people. You are to treat her as precious because of who God says she is, because of what God is doing in her. She, with you, is a living stone that's being built into the house of the Lord. Let me ask you this. We make thousands of decisions on a daily basis. 
that don't honor women as precious. Why? How often do you fail to see your wife through the lens of the gospel? How often do you fail to see her through the lens of the gospel and instead objectify her for what you want to get from her? Men, we fail to treat our wives and the women around us as precious because we fail to see them through the lens of the gospel and what God says about them and who they are. And when we fail to do that, married or unmarried, we end up making them into what we want them to be and objectifying them for what we think we can get from them. as an absolutely vacant, vacant way to live. Because of the gospel, we are called to treat our wives with honor, valuing the preciousness of their soul, valuing the preciousness of the gift of God that they are to us. One way, one way that Peter says we show honor to our wives one way we treat our wives and the preciousness that they deserve to be treated in is by living with them in an understanding way. By living with them in an understanding way. And let me say this before you feel absolutely abused. For him to say this means it must not be easy for us to do it. For him to actually have to encourage us to live with our wives in an understanding way, it demonstrates that that's difficult or else he wouldn't have had to say anything. So one way you treat your wife as precious and you give her the honor that she deserves is that you live with her in an understanding way. And the, another way that your Bible may say that is to dwell with your wife uh, according to knowledge. So you honor her and you treat her as precious. You live with her in an honorable way that exalts the preciousness with which God has in, endowed her with. When you live with her and dwell with her according to understanding and knowledge, when you understand what it's like for her, when you understand what her day is like, when you understand what her pressures are, when you understand what her responsibilities are, you understand what her rhythms are, when you live with her in just a manner of base consideration, when you lift up the toilet seat and then put it back down, when you come home from work and you take the kids for 15 or 20 minutes, let her breathe, when you help her cook, when you cook for her, when you clean, when you help, when you live in an understanding way, understanding that she's not just a woman who lives in your house, but she has a soul. And she's with you together on the purpose that we've been talking about of cultivating the beauty and the glory of God and the creative world around them. And that includes you live with her in an understanding way, seeking to do her good spiritually. It starts by just living with base consideration about who she is, what she does, what she faces, how you can come in and how you can encourage and how you can help. But that's not all. It's not just living in a considerate manner and putting down the toilet seat and cleaning up after yourself. You're to dwell with her in knowledge and to live with understanding from an experiential way. See, married men and those who hope to be. You have a responsibility and a calling from God to live with your wife in such a way that is in accordance to what you know about them and value about them and their preciousness. See, here's the reality I learned five years ago that began to change everything about the way that I was able to love and live with my wife. 
What you love, you study. What you love, you learn. What you continue to learn, you love even more. And you are to dwell with your wives in an understanding way, according to knowledge, in such a way that you should study them. You should know what makes them tick. Out of your value of their preciousness and the honor with which you are to live with them and express to them, do you know what she's afraid of? Do you know what she loves? Do you know what she cares about? Do you know what her hopes are, what her fears are? Do you know what her relationship with the Lord is like? Do you know where she's struggling? Do you know what she's scared of? Do you know what things she deals with, what temptations are hard for her, what strength she has, where she hopes to grow? Do you know anything about your wife? Have you ever attempted to live with her in any manner of understanding and knowledge? Have you ever demonstrated her preciousness to you by living with her in such a way that seeks to understand her, that you can come alongside of her and lead her to see the cultivation of her soul take place? Peter says you're to dwell with your wives according to knowledge. What does she fear? What does she worry about? Where is she struggling to follow your lead? Have you ever asked her? Do you listen to your wife so she can get it all out and finish talking? Or do you listen to your wife with an ear towards understanding a little bit more about her? The thing that she says over and over and over again, instead of dismissing her, do you ever listen to see what she's saying about herself in there? What things that you can take note of? What things that you can remember? What things that you can begin then to love and serve and address in your responsibilities? You're to live with her and dwell with her according to knowledge. Listen, I was trying to come up with a way to ask this. How, how would your relationship change if you stopped reacting to your wife and instead you started listening to her and you asked questions to her in an attempt to draw out from her a better understanding of who she is? That's your responsibility. That's your call to live with her in an understanding way according to the preciousness with which God has endowed her with. And listen, I'll, I'll say this for time's sake. Men, to begin to do this, to begin to grow in this, to begin to grow in your capacity to live with your wife in an understanding way, to honor her for who she is, to love her the way that Christ has loved the church, for your love of her to demonstrate a, a sacrifice that lays down your will and your preferences and your priorities for her, to live with her in a gracious way that demonstrates a love and a care and a forgiveness that isn't based on what she says and what she does. to live with her in an honoring way that reflects the way that you have been loved by Christ himself will take humility. It will take humility. It will take the capacity to learn to find your identity and your security not in your capacity to do this well, but in the one who has done it well on your behalf, who has loved you, who has served you, who has laid his life down for you, and who has given you his very spirit that you might be able to dwell with your wife in the very same way. It will take humility. You will have to learn to laugh at yourself sometimes. And wives, unmarried ladies, go easy on guys sometimes. Don't compare your 23-year-old husband to the 55-year-old man. That 30 plus years of difference comes with a lot of maturity and a lot of experiences. 
Don't compare him and then belittle him. Live with him in an honorable way, knowing that all of us, no matter where we are in this, are all still being transformed into the image and likeness of God. This is my prayer for the marriages in this family. This is my prayer for the marriages in the church and these people who who are still praying that God would bring them the person that they would live with for the rest of their life. This is my prayer for all of us. I look at those pictures that we put up at the beginning and I don't even recognize. I don't even recognize the people that we were 10 years ago. The change that has come as we have learned to enjoy grace more deeply, the change that has come when we have learned to cultivate our souls to reflect the character of Christ, the change that has come when we no longer focused on where each other needed to grow, but on waking up each day with the holy ambition to be ourselves transformed has created a people that I look at 10 years later and find unrecognizable. Only the grace of God can produce that kind of transformation. You don't need strategies, you don't need books, you don't need techniques, you need the gospel. Wherever you are, you need the gospel. You're one year away from getting married, you're 35 years into getting married. You still need the gospel. You still need to wake up every single day with the holy ambition to see your soul transformed into the image of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, my hope, my hope for the marriages in this church, my hope for the marriages that will come in this church, my hope for the marriages of all of your people in your church is not in two people, but it's in your gospel. My hope for my marriage is not in my wife and I, it's in your gospel. It's in your grace and your power to transform sinners like us, to reflect your glory to a watching world. Lord, I pray for those in this room who, who aren't married. I pray that today and tomorrow and the day after that, they would wake up and pray for the ambition to be transformed into your image that their sense of identity would come not from the person that they're looking for and not from the day when something about their status changes, but their identity and their security and their hope would come from who they are because of what you have done. I pray that those of us who are not married right now would begin to practice the cultivation of their soul right now and not wait for that day to come. And for those of us, Lord, who are married, I pray. I pray that as we cling tighter to who you are and what you've done, we would be families that would enjoy your grace deeper, that we would enjoy your grace more fully, that we would learn to live with one another in an honorable way that reflects your glory, that reflects a hope in you, a hope in your power. Lord, I ask this, that a watching world who is devoid of answers would come to know your people. And the hope that we could share is not a book that we were given or a technique that we practiced but a person that's changed us. The hope that we could share with a watching world would be the good news of the transformation of your grace. I ask this that the world may know you. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.